Hey everyone, I thought I'd record an intro on my phone from here at Lakeside Retreats in Raleigh where I'm doing the Mind Under Matter Campout Festival September 9th through the 11th. I thought I'd come to the area where I'm going to have science talks at. There's kind of these little peninsulas along the lake, so we're having different um, things going on. So you see in the background across the lake, there's the stage, and you walk around the stage past the wellness area, boom, you can hear a science talk. There's gonna be bands from two to two all through the day, but there's about an hour in between each band for setup and takedown um, that we're kind of keeping to the longer side so we can have a science talk here and then stand-up comedy uh, start, and, and um, so scientists will be able to give a, uh, a decent um, sized talk before the next band starts, but also the, the music isn't terribly intrusive or anything either, so that'll be nice during the Q&A. There'll be some nice ambient music happening um, while you're chatting with someone like my guest today who's going to be here. And, um, oh, by the way, pro tip, there's no one here uh, right now. If you're like, I want to rent a year at Lakeside Retreats sometime when I'm in Raleigh, even when I'm not at uh, 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 the Camp Out Festival. Um, get it during the week. Weekends, they're all going to be full. Uh, not that it's not pleasant and private, but you got the whole place to yourself. Oh, man, I stayed here for, for uh, several nights by myself. It was awesome. But needed to make this intro because a couple quick things, it's not a big deal at all, but this was my very first in-person, here we are since COVID, and I added video um, since COVID, and I uh, was, my mind was so occupied with all the video stuff that I forgot to check some of my boxes on the audio uh, department. So, um, first thing is, is that there's there's going to be some edits in here and there where we had to stop because there was an air compressor no big deal you might not even notice and uh and then uh there was i had a bad uh, microphone which i didn't realize because i forgot my headphones which would have made me realize it right away and um my amazing editor uh matt mccool was able to cover all that up support him by supporting the shane moss patreon by the way he works very hard on this show fixing my errors which was the biggest one which i forgot to hit record on the audio recorder in the beginning of the episode so for about the first 17 minutes still sounds good it's just off of uh it's just off of this phone what you're listening to right now no big deal but if you're a big audio file or something, you can skip to 17 minutes past whenever I stop blabbing, blabbing here. And you can uh, pick right up in, in the conversation. I don't think it's necessary at all. The only reason why uh, it, it, the whole episode's good, it sounds is a fantastic conversation. Um, I, I just need to mention these things because I get paranoid that it'll be like a first-time listener that's like really particular about sound, and I don't want people to think that this is the regular, normal quality of the show. We just had a few hiccups. They're not bad at all. Really, really, really terrific episode. 
um, maybe maybe one of my favorite conversations of the year. So enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am Shane Moss. I'm doing my first in-person interview since COVID happened, and I used to always haul around a bunch of audio equipment. This is my very first in-person video episode. I'm very excited. Those of you that normally listen, now most of you are, are audio listeners. You might want to take a peek on, on YouTube, even if you don't usually, because you'll get to see there's all sorts of cool fossils and stuff behind me. I am at Duke University talking with human paleontologist Stephen Churchill is joining me today. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the, the program. Of course. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for coming. You you already came out to Lakeside Retreats to check out the uh, the area for the Campo Festival. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, gonna to come back to the festival, so I think that's going to be a blast, too. So you're going to bring actual, some of these fossil replicas yeah. and things? Yeah. and. Uh-huh. And people can check them out, and and people. Uh, on yeah, the, my plan um, is to kind of do like a, a show and tell, and just see what people want to talk about, and take it wherever it goes. I'm I'm hoping because there are if there are people that happen to have rocks or things that they think are fossils or something that they may yeah. have identified, they could have them. Uh, they could bring them and. Yeah, that that would also be great. Um, I get probably about two or three calls a year from somebody nearby who's like, "Yeah, I found something in my yard." Um, I don't know if it's a fossil or if it's a bone or if it's an artifact. Um, and it's always fun. How do they find you? They just... Uh, I don't I guess they just get online and search <laughs> around and somehow I pop up. <laughs> it seems like a crazy... Being being one of the crazy people that start, When I originally started the show um, 10 years ago, I was just... I was always reading science books, but I, I got really obsessed with David Attenborough documentaries and things. And then I started reading more and more books and more into biology and things. And I just had so many questions and I started reaching out to authors and, and, and that was one of the most shocking things from the start was just how, um, accommodating, uh, scientists are. They're very happy. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. The, the downside is that I very often have to tell people that something they're really excited about is just a rock. <laughs> That's got to be <laughs> close to 100% of the time. Right? Well, a lot of the time. But sometimes people have found, I mean, there are great fossils here in North Carolina. Um, back in the late 1800s, some kids playing in a creek found a nearly complete um, mammoth skeleton or mastodon. I'm not sure which. Um, so sometimes they are actually fossils, and wow. you know, that's cool, but a lot of times they're rocks. One of the things that um, that blew my mind was, uh, I, I guess I'd never thought about before, was that it wasn't until all that recently that humans understood a concept like extinction. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, like, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was, who was yeah. a bit of a naturalist and stuff, would find, like, a giant ground sloth fossil or something and 
and be like, Lewis and Clark, watch out for these things. Yeah, right. Whatever the heck this is, <laughs> assuming that it was still out there yeah. somewhere. Well, a lot of that stuff was also interpreted kind of in a biblical framework of like, these are right. things that died in the flood. Ah, that makes sense. So there was kind of an idea about extinction, but not in the right. evolutionary biological. Oh, that's sense. interesting. Um, so why don't you uh, share your background a little bit? Yeah, so um, I am a, a hominin paleontologist. I study the fossil record of human evolution. And um, for the first, you know, 20, 25 years of my career, I largely worked on... Um, an extinct species of human called Neanderthals. Um, they are- They're the popular ones. Yeah, they get the all the glory. Ones. Yeah. Well, they're cool. I mean, so first off, they're relatively recent in human evolutionary history. Yeah. We share an ancestor with them about a half a million years ago. So they are a sister species to us. Mm -hmm. um, and they went extinct relatively recently, maybe on the order of 30 to 40,000 years ago. So, and we have a really good archeological record for them. So we know a lot about them. Mm -hmm. And now we have DNA for them. So we're learning like more and more and more about them. But in some ways they're still like really mysterious. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really cool. Um, how so? Because it, I, I know one of the things that seems to be um, uh, getting into the zeitgeist or whatever, kind of becoming a more common knowledge in, in people's mind is that uh, is that there's still people with Neanderthal DNA and yeah. they're co closely related. Yeah. What's the, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, pretty much uh, anybody whose ancestors come from either Europe or Asia um, has Neanderthal DNA. And that includes indigenous people from North and South America because their ancestors also came from Asia. Mm -hmm. um, because um, we as a species, Homo sapiens, we originated in Africa. And at some point, there are a couple pulses um, of, of movement out of Africa. There were some early ones that didn't really take. But then at some point, probably on the order of about 60,000 years ago, we really started to expand out of Africa. And we encountered these closely related, what we call archaic species like Neanderthals. And we interbred with them. Mm. And so as those populations continued to expand, so this probably initially happened in the Near East, in places like Israel and Jordan and Syria. And as those populations continued to expand, they carried Neanderthal DNA with them. In my mind, it was always that I, I guess I, I, I thought they kind of came from the same branch and started separating and were basically still mating until they were diverse enough and then kind of stopped mating. But they, they, they our human ancestors found Neanderthals and yep. wanted to mate with them. Yep. That's, there was mating going on. <laughs> I kind of get it, I guess. Yeah, and <laughs> what's really weird, well, you know, I mean, if you think about it, when, um, explorers like Columbus's guys came back from the New World. Uh, one of the questions that was before the Vatican was um, whether bestiality was a mortal sin. Mm. Um, you know, so if humans will do that, right. <laughs> mating with a near relative, you know, right, human species right. is, is not that weird, right? Right, right, right. Um, but uh, yeah, and 
we now know of an, another. It, sorry, can I can I stop? So yeah. so what? So then, what happened when humans mated with Neanderthals? What 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 were the off the offspring or like then became like yeah. Europeans and like eventually? Yeah. So we don't really know. There's there's like a lot about it we don't know. So for instance, it could be that. Um, that there was a certain direction to the interbreeding, like for instance, maybe um, modern human males mated with Neanderthal females, right? Um, and then those children probably went with mama back into Neanderthal groups and ah. found mates in Neanderthal groups. Um, certainly, some of those Neanderthal genes made it into our gene pool because that's what we're picking up. You know, most people uh, who who are not of African descent have got about two to four percent, two to four percent Neanderthal DNA. Wow. Yeah. What about those? Going back to where you said um, that humans kind of took a run at spreading. Uh, yeah. you, something that seems to go along with having a big brain is an exploratory nature. Maybe that's not the case in every species, but I guess yeah. reading a lot about octopus recently, and it's just like. It started in shells, got a bigger brain, we're like, no, you know what, I'm going to go out there and explore. Yeah, yeah such an exploratory nature. Um, I think I think that's part of the story. I think the main part of the story is that um, our ancestors in Africa were just doing really well, and their populations were growing. And because they're living a foraging lifestyle, they're not producing their own food, they're not growing their own food, you know, that requires a certain amount of territory per person. And so as they're growing, their, their kind of population pressure is pushing them and they're expanding their ranges and moving into environments where they're maybe not real, like, well adapted to that environment yet, but population pressure is pushing them there. Wow. So overpopulation would have looked a lot different yeah. in an age before kind of uh, yeah. the, the agricultural revolution where you're able to pack a whole bunch yeah. of crops in one small space. You would have needed much more, much more property. Yeah. But there, there's definitely also the explorer aspect of it, too, because yeah. like people couldn't have gotten to Australia without getting in <laughs> boats and going, we don't know what's out there, but we're going to go find out. It's so bananas to me. Some of the, I, I think the, uh, was it Magellan that that died? And on, on there was, I think it was him. But there was like four, fourteen boats that went out to. Um, it's when they discovered the birds of paradise, and they're called the birds of paradise because uh, all the other, every, nearly everyone died. One boat made it back. And like all they pretty much had to show for it was a couple <laughs> birds. And they were like, these birds are from paradise. <laughs> it's such a paradise, up. everybody died but us. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's a, Australia, because Australia would have been, because of what we're talking like um, 200,000 years ago or? Well, no, so the first people to get to Australia were probably on the order of 60 to 70,000 years okay. ago. Um, so it's like basically where it is today. It, it had. It yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, everything was pretty much yeah. where it is today. But even still, you know, you've got to cross the Torres Straits, and that's, I don't know what, 100 miles of open water or something like that. I've taken flights to Australia, and it seems like a nightmare to me. Yeah. Like in in a reclining chair watching a movie, yeah. and I can barely bear, yeah. <laughs> bear it. Yeah. Um, and. 
you know, you might think, well, maybe these are just fishermen or whatever who get blown off course, you know, in a storm and they end up over there. Um, but clearly they needed females yeah. um, to establish, to actually colonize the continent. Yeah. And, and man, when you talk about places like Micronesia and Melanesia and Polynesia, then people are covering lots of open water in boats. That's <laughs> like amazing. You see going kayaks. Is, is, is there, is there, um, are, are there, find, are some of these boats still, like, the findings of them exist any, anywhere? Or have I don't they, know. They all... I don't know. I mean, that's a little bit more recent than I work on, so I don't yeah. know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it's, uh, it's cool having these, um, these fossil records. Like I said, I was just reading about octopus. Yeah. octopus. It's not octopi. It's octopus is plural as well as a singular. Everyone says octopi, but um, no bones. Right. So not a whole lot to work with in right. terms of trying to, I mean, there's exactly. the DNA testing and everything that's, that's come yeah. along, but. Yeah, uh, you're not going to find a lot of octopus fossils. I, I feel like human paleontologists, I don't know, you, you sort of, it got it. I mean, they're they're so much more similar to us. You you can kind of know where to look. They fit in the same spaces yeah. that we fit into yeah, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Or or is it? Uh, you ever get jealous of like the dinosaur people because they get they get a lot of the publicity? Or yeah, I don't begrudge them that. I mean, we get our fair share of the publicity too. You yeah, know? it's all good. It's all good. I mean, I love the dinosaur stuff. Um, it. It would be mind blowing to me to work on like a femur, you know, or thigh bone, which is seven feet long. I mean, that's yeah. just some of those dinosaurs are crazy. And if you're if you're looking at uh, different species as a as a paleontologist, how difficult is it to because kind of. Um, my understanding with, the, with certainly a lot of primates, you can kind of look at the hip bone, get a sense of how they were walking, look at different joints and kind of figure out, you, you could maybe look at teeth and, and see the sexual dimorphism and, and maybe maybe even uh, take a guess at what um, mating behavior may have been like from from things like that. Could, could you do the same with just most uh, many other species as well would, would you say it translates i mean there's there's nothing particularly special about humans yeah we use a lot of the same methods you yeah. know uh, a lot of comparative work where you're just comparing um if you're trying to figure things out about their behavior or ecology you're comparing them to things where you know something about their behavior and ecology if you're trying to figure out about their anatomy you're comparing them to things where you know you have a good idea what the anatomy means in terms of um, what species it is you're looking at, or whatever. Um, but it's 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 cool because, um, you know, I sort of think the human condition is a lot like um, uh, waking up with amnesia. Mm. Like you've <laughs> suffered a head injury, and you come to in the hospital, and you have no idea who you are, where you came from, who your parents are, you know, whatever. And we have just through ingenuity and the scientific method um, and hard work, we've figured out so much yeah. about what our story is. It's amazing. It is yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I was just just today. I was kind of going through in my head the the 
an abbreviated history going from the Big Bang, you know, the, yeah. the, the formation of Earth and early forms and, and uh, single cell organisms and multi, you know, just kind of trying to go through everything in my head and, and checking my knowledge for where it is. And it's, and I just thought to myself, it's amazing that I can even do this. Yeah. I, no, it's... I got, and there's nothing special about me. I just got the information. We have the tools to, yeah. to gather all of this yeah. and anyone can learn about this. It stuff. is absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, and one thing that's really cool about um, hominid paleontology or paleoanthropology is it's a really, really dynamic field. We're finding new stuff all the time. Um, ancient DNA work has really revolutionized our understanding of a bunch of things. Uh, we're always finding new fossils. We're, we've got new techniques all the time, like now, you know, virtual ways of reconstructing fossils and everything and analyzing fossils that we couldn't do before. And it's just, it's so much fun to, to see everything. And we're back. So uh, where were we? I, and now we have better sound. I, re I haven't done this in a long time and I didn't realize my mics weren't recording. So you're, you, you now have that much better sound. Thank goodness for compressors going off. Um, I was talking about just how fast the field is moving. Mm. And it's, it's really, really fun to be a part of it. And it's fun to, you know, work on stuff like that puts you in the middle of a debate um, you know, cause the great thing about science is nobody believes anything you say, right? You, you're like, Hey, we found a new species and the field's like, no, you didn't. And then away you go. Right. Yeah. So that's a lot of fun. But I was going to say like one really cool thing is the ancient DNA stuff. Um, uh, geneticists out of the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, um, basically discovered a species of human that we didn't know about in the fossil record at a cave in Siberia called um, Denisova Cave, and um, they, they had recovered, they had tools which looked like Neanderthal tools, and there were three fossils, a finger bone, just the end of a, a finger, and two teeth, and the teeth didn't really look like Neanderthal teeth, and so they were like, well, that's kind of weird because we expected this to be Neanderthals, um, and so they extracted DNA and they sequenced the DNA and they're like, that ain't a Neanderthal and it's not a modern human either. And um, we basically discovered, well, they discovered this, this entire lineage. Uh, since then, more stuff has been sequenced. We found more of them and a lower jaw. We still don't really know what they look like anatomically. A lower jaw of them was found in Tibet, mm. rediscovered, had been found back in the fifties or something. Um, and we know that these guys, so we know that we split with the Neanderthals about a half a million years ago. And the Neanderthal lineage, um, our lineage stayed in Africa. The Neanderthal lineage was in Europe and the Near East and across into Asia as far as Siberia. And somewhere, maybe on the order of 300,000 years ago, they split and gave rise to these Denisovans. So the Neanderthals and Denisovans are actually sister species, and we're cousins to both of them. But not only did we interbreed with Neanderthals, we interbred with the Denisovans, and the Denisovans interbred with the Neanderthals. So that stuff was just going on like crazy. Wow. Back That's, in the Pleistocene. There's just a lot of, huh, close enough. Yeah. Sort yeah. of. <laughs> huh. I, I wonder how uh, how much of it was commonplace, how much of it was... Uh, you, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about, um, mating behavior, a good, 
a uh, number of times on the show and and in in some regards we were hyper selective and yeah. and, and uh and so i don't do you would you venture a guess that there was like um uh, kind of lower value um mates that that this was happening in or or is it like guys are, are of course so uh have have that lower uh, minimal parental investment um of yeah, so course they're, they're and so typically not, not as, as choosy, right, choosy right, right. so um you know the thing is i think neanderthals and modern humans came in contact in different places over a pretty long period of time and like when any cultures come in contact, I think it went down in different ways in different places. Mm. In some places, it may have been fairly peaceful where they were exchanging cultural ideas and exchanging genes. In other places, it more may have been more sort of violent and unpleasant. Right, right. And, you know, and so it's hard to know. What, what do you do? Do people venture a guess at... at um what Neanderthals' um, language abilities were were like? Yeah, that's one of the golden questions, um, you know, because unfortunately language doesn't really preserve. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at proxies. Um, their vocal anatomy is a bit different than ours. Mm. And I think the best reconstruction suggests that they could not make this, the full range of vowel sounds that we can make. And in fact, may have been limited to just one or two vowel sounds. Mm -hmm. But the important thing to keep in mind is that vowels really just serve the function of separating the consonants. And the information content in words is contained in the consonants. So you can go through a piece of text and strip out all the vowels and still read the text. And it, it will largely be, uh, unless it's Hawaiian, where it's, the words are mostly vowels, mm -hmm. uh, it'll still largely be comprehensible. Um, and then the other thing that we can look at is like symbolic behavior, right? Because language is a symbol system, mm -hmm. right? The words are symbols for, for things. Right. Um, so we can ask, well, do Neanderthals have the capacity for symbolic expression? Mm. And the evidence suggests that they did. They didn't do it a lot in the form of like personal adornment or artwork or whatever, but occasionally they did it. And that tells us they could do it. Mm. So... Um, I suspect that they had some kind of language. Mm. Now, I don't think we'll ever know if they had like a fully syntactical language with like future and past tenses where they could, you know, talk about what happened in the past to predict what will happen in the future. Right. Who knows? But they had big brains. Their brains were bigger than ours. Right, right. So it would be it, surprising to me that they, they didn't have a pretty good language system. And, and they kind of... Uh, is this right that that a lot of their tools were maybe even more sophisticated as as well? Like human humans potentially had the numbers. I I know, I I don't know if this is one of those pop science books that drives a person like yourself crazy. But *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind* yeah. was was something that got into yeah. um, the uh, pop culture a bit, and making the you're familiar with the idea of of thinking that that the cognitive revolution 75,000 years ago or, or so yeah. something that came along with that was this uh, ability to agree upon these yeah. social constructs and subjective realities and and that sort of thing and and so it, it's a kind of a cool point of view that there was nothing 
um, like more intelligent or, or better tools or anything than the Neanderthals. It's just our ability to cooperate and yeah. Yeah. work together in larger numbers. Yeah. So um, I would say the cognitive revolution is the minority position these mm -hmm. days. And part of that is because we have now detected evidence that Neanderthals were able to engage in abstract thought and symbolic behavior, mm. which are sort of two of the cornerstones of, of modern human cognitive ability. Um, and I think most people would say it's all about population density. Mm. That first off, you don't really need to express those things until you live in a richer social environment, mm -hmm. right? Like personal adornment signals something about your affiliation with a group of people right. or your status in that group. And if you live in a small band of 12 people, you don't need to be social signaling, you know, All and that band only meets stuff. four or five other such bands. Everybody knows everybody. You don't need a lot of social signaling. Interesting. Um, so, so evidence of a lot of social signaling, uh, signaling jewels, necklaces, and stuff would be indicative yeah. of a higher population. And when we see the Neanderthals doing it, are during um, warm intervals in the southern part of their range, where their populations are starting probably to get a bit larger, and they're starting to experience a little bit of population packing, and then we see them expressing that behavior. Um, and so, um, another part of it is that something called cultural ratcheting. Uh, have you ever heard that, that phrase? It's been a while. Refresh me. I've yeah, definitely it's, heard it's, it. It's, it's technical name is cumulative technological evolution, but everybody just calls it cultural ratcheting. So um, if I ask you who invented the bow and arrow, right? Uh, you might say, well, we can't know because it was invented so long ago, right? But probably the reality is no single person invented the bow and arrow that there was some early version of it. So imagine an arrow um, and, you know, somebody figured out, hey, I can use this, uh, this stave of wood and, and string and this little stick to propel an arrow and shoot animals, right? And then some, somebody somewhere else later in time said, hey, if I put some, tie some feathers onto the back end of this thing, it flies better and more accurately. And then still somewhere else, and that catches on and it spreads, right? And then somewhere else, maybe a thousand miles away, somebody else goes, hey, if I, you know, bind these feathers in there really well and orient them just so, it flies even better. And if I wait it just so, and you know, so um, cultural ratcheting is that technology, if it's useful, it spreads. And then other people who had nothing to do with the invention of that technology improve that technology. And the result of cultural ratcheting is you get very rapid evolution of technology. And we're in, like, right now, we're like in extreme cultural ratcheting mode, right? Yeah. You know, it's like somebody writes a bit of code and somebody, you know, on another continent is like, hey, I can make this even better. And, you know, and it's, it's crazy. Um, but that requires some population density for for um, stuff both to spread and for innovators to innovate the stuff. So when our species cropped up in Africa, we were making tools very similar to what the Neanderthals were making. The Neanderthals kept making that kind of tool. But after about 90,000 years ago, we start making a whole bunch of new kinds of tools. Um, and so we call one of the one of the other cornerstones of human modern human cognitive ability is innovativeness, right? But that innovativeness is probably a function of living at higher population densities. Interesting. And, and 
if you had to venture a guess, I've heard a few numbers tossed around. When when's the last time the human brain changed? That like yeah. it, it, the 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 goal is you're gonna go back in time, take a baby, bring it back here and raise it. No one's gonna be the wiser. Okay. Yeah. How far back can you go? Man, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I would certainly say. You could probably go back 300,000 years. That's the longest one I've heard. I've yeah. heard as short as 75,000, but then I've, I got the sense 200,000 at least. Yeah. yeah. Our brains have gotten a little bit smaller in the last 10,000 years, actually. The peak of brain size in our species was, was about 10,000 to maybe 90 or 100,000 years ago. But I think structurally, it hasn't really changed much. Mm. Um and the thing is, like, we don't really know what brain size is good for anyway. Right. Um, like a whale has a huge brain. Most of it's dedicated to moving its body exactly. as far as they are and everything else. Much of it's much of it's and, not for intellect. You know, Anatole France, the philosopher, he was a member of, like, the Royal Academy of France or something like that. Um, he had, he was also mi almost microcephalic. His brain uh, was Can like, you describe that word? A uh, microcephalic, or, 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 a tiny brain. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, his brain was like 900 cubic centimeters or maybe a thousand cubic centimeters. The global average is 1300. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So we yeah. don't really know. And he was a smart dude. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. But you know, it depends on a whole bunch of other things like uh -huh. neuron density, um, the, the density of connections in the brain and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Huh. So maybe three hundred thousand. Yeah, years. that's. I just say that because that's when our we we first recognize our species in the fossil record. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Huh. That's it. it it's still that's just so interesting to be. Um, uh, uh, I mean, you can understand going to war with other. Uh, with, with with like cousin species and things like that, certainly it doesn't. But yeah. but having a social life with them and everything is my because even with language abilities, it's still like I, I get the appeal. You, you know, you meet someone with a French accent or whatever, like oh wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. or, or or that speaks French, you <laughs> right, know, and, right, right. and you you'll be accommodating and everything, yeah. even if you don't understand one another. But that could have been like a. a uh, you know, going from English to French might be a, a less significant jump than human right. to yeah. Neanderthal yeah, yeah. to get along. Yeah. Huh. Or maybe you just keep your mouth shut when a new <laughs> when right. everyone gets along. Huh. Yeah. Did humans act the same in Africa as they did when they started moving into the Ice Age climate? Was yeah. this just a product of the environment and our high adaptability and innovation that we talked about or 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 what? Uh, or were we um, um, more static in our yeah. behavior? Yeah, so that's what led me to work in South Africa. Okay. And uh, so I started working down there shortly after apartheid had been repealed, started in 95. And in 2008, my colleague down there, Lee Berger, uh, his son Matthew actually discovered a fossil hominin at a site which we now call Malapa. And um, that discovery led to the recovery of two partial skeletons and some isolated bones of um, some other individuals of a species that we had not recognized in the fossil record before called Australopithecus sediba. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then my whole world turned upside down. You know, it was like, it was like winning the lottery, um, you know, and it, it was, it was phenomenal. Initially when I got the contact from Lee, you know, and he sent some pictures of the, the first fossils that they had found. Um, I thought, well, this is Australopithecus, you know, I work on the genus Homo and I really work on like the later stages of human evolution, right? The, the Australopiths, they disappeared from the fossil record about 2 million years ago, right? And so, so I'm go like, bother someone else. Yeah. I'm pass. like, yeah, I'm not sure I really want to, you know, I want to jump on, on this. And then, you know, then the emails kept coming. He said, yeah, you know, the more we're looking at it, the more it looks like early Homo. So I'm like, okay, this is starting to get a little more interesting because things like Homo habilis aren't really well known in the fossil record. And there are some pretty major adaptive shifts that happen with that transition from Australopithecus to Homo. And that's what really interests me is adaptive strategies and adaptive shifts. So I said, okay, this is starting to sound interesting. Uh, and then I got involved. But, you know, it was like it, it involved a complete retooling for me. Because when you work on Neanderthals, your behavioral frame of reference are like living foraging people, right, who are living off the land. And your anatomical frame of reference is modern human skeletal variation. But when you're dealing with an Australopith, um, you know, suddenly I'm like, I do not really know enough about ape ecology and behavior as I should. And I do not know enough about like chimpanzee and gorilla and orangutan anatomy as I should. So it took a lot of retooling, um, but it was super fun. It was so fun to be in the position of like, okay, we got this thing. How do we figure out what we're looking at? You know? And the first thing that we did was to compare it to all the fossils in South Africa, which is relatively straightforward for us because they're there at our institution or an hour drive to the North. Um, and it became clear that we were looking at something which did not fit within the known Southern African species. And we, we started thinking, maybe we have a South African like Homo habilis kind of thing. Um, and then we took, um, we took the team up to East Africa to look at the material in the um, National Museum of Kenya in Nairobi. And it became clear to us that this was something we didn't see in East Africa either. And we were convinced that we, um, we had found a new species. But through that whole process, we began to realize, um, you know, we were thinking clearly it should go in the genus Homo because it shares features with other members of the genus Homo that you don't see in Australopiths. But at the same time, this thing had the body size of a chimpanzee, the brain size of a chimpanzee, long arms, a kind of a conical um, thorax like a chimpanzee. Uh, conical? What's that? Yeah, so our, our thorax is kind of like a cylinder, which is flattened front to back, whereas apes have got a conical. It's very narrow at the top, very narrow at the top, and then expands as you go down. Um, so the overall, like, overall anatomy of these guys was very apy. Mm. And we became convinced that to put it in the genus Homo, right? Things in the genus Homo should be more similar to us than they are to a chimpanzee. Mm. And to put it in the genus Homo would stretch 
the genus Homo beyond meaning. And we made the decision to put it in the genus Australopithecus. But we highlighted all the features it shared with the genus Homo. And our working hypothesis was that this was the, the either the species that gave rise to our genus or a very close relative of the species that gave rise to our genus. And we, we imagined that when we announced the species that the reaction of the field was a bunch of people would say, you shouldn't have named a new species. Because that's what always happens in paleoanthropology, right? They're like, oh, that's just an Australopithecus africanus. Oh, that's just a Homo habilis. You shouldn't have named a new species. And that didn't happen at all. Mm. Nobody said, oh, they erred in naming a new species. Um, but what did happen was about half the field said, you put it in the wrong genus. Mm. It should be in the genus Homo. And the other half of the field said, no, they put it in the right genus. And that was super fun because when you, you get that kind of lack of consensus, it generally means there's no good, there's no good answer. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it, it potentially it, it's equally belongs in, yeah. in both. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And really your choice of where to put it is a function of like your philosophy of how you reconstruct evolutionary trees and that kind of thing. How much you like being a human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I like that we called ourselves great apes. Yes. That's one of my favorite things. Right. Like, okay, okay, we're apes. But, right. yeah. but we're, we're some pretty darn ones. good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the poor Gibbons, they're the lesser apes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> love Gibbons. Uh, that's funny. So how often does this happen? You get an email where, where someone thinks maybe they found something because, uh, uh, you know, you, you didn't even, it must have happened enough times where when the real one came in, you didn't even recognize it as such. Yeah. Right. Well, the fact that it was coming from my colleague in South Africa who, you know, he can certainly recognize a fossil and he knows what he's looking at. So, um, so yeah, but it, it is kind of cool to open up your email in the morning and be looking at pictures of some really cool fossils and going, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's very I cool. would have, I would have let them wait like a couple days before responding. <laughs> <'cause he's> like, <laughs> <"What?"> <laughs> you, know, you get really excited. You want to yeah. tell someone they're busy or whatever. <laughs> like what? You don't want to hear all my good news. <laughs> um, and, and this is, so this is called the, the rising star. No, so no. that's a that's that's when we hit the lottery the second time. Oh, you hit the lottery. Okay, you know what? You take you yeah. you steer the ship. So um, it... Australopithecus sediba we found at um, Malapa. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, another thing that Lee, my colleague Lee, had been doing uh, during those days was working with local cavers to educate them about like looking for fossils when they're going in the caves. Because where we work in South Africa. Um, you, you need caves to find fossils. That's where you're going to find the fossils. Um, and uh, on the on a Friday, the 13th of September, back in 2013, a couple cavers in a, um, a cave called Rising Star discovered fossils. They knew not to move them, but they took pictures of them in situ and uh, brought them to Lee's attention. And we could tell they were hominin fossils. And so we were very excited. And um, that led to the discovery of yet another new species called Homo naledi. Mm. Now, in, in the case of Homo naledi, um, this one we did put in our genus because it was much closer to us. 
resembled us, even though it's fairly primitive in some respects, resembled us much more closely than uh, resembled an ape or an australopith. And uh, how, how far apart were these sites? So they're about eight miles as the crow flies. Really? That, yeah. that close together? Yeah, okay. this is in a, an area outside of Johannesburg in South Africa, which is called the Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site. Um, because there are a bunch of caves that have produced hominin fossils. And a lot of what you're seeing here came from the cradle of humankind. Amazing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And, 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 and the cradle was so diverse that even, even humans um, kind of w- within Africa um, were, were quite diverse um, genetically, right? In terms of the genetic drift and everything, like the, the, it's my understanding, like people think you see you know you see different races and, and assume that you'd be yeah. like less or more genetically related to a certain race or whatever else and, and there's and but there's in that branch of uh like coming from that part of africa there's like a large population that went through europe and asia and everything that are as related to the africans in that area or, yeah. or more so than some of the other humans yeah. in africa right yeah as a species we are not very genetically diverse mm-hmm. because we all share a fairly recent origin mm-hmm. um, in africa from probably a fairly small population but um there was a lot of diversity in africa back in you know two million years ago and moving forward and probably even before then. Um, but we recognize now about 28 or 30, depending on who you ask, species in the human fossil record. Um, so, yeah, and and in the cradle, we pick up a, a bunch of different species. And part of that is because the different caves are preserving deposits from different time periods. Mm-hmm. And so depending on what hominin group was living in the area at that time, that's what's being sampled. Um, in most of these cave sites, with the exception of Malapa and Rising Star, um, the hominins are there because carnivores brought them into the site. Mm. They're coming in as the scraps of a carnivore wow, meal. Yeah. Um, at Malapa, it looks like it's a death trap, that there was probably a vertical entrance to the cave and animals, the hominins aren't the only ones down there. Animals were like walking along in the tall grass and whoop, boom, wow. dropping down, you know, 60 feet to their death. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Lucky um, for you. Yeah, lucky for us. Uh, and at Rising Star, it's even more bizarre because, um, so these cavers found these uh, these yeah. bones. We thought, based on the pictures that they brought back, that we had a skeleton in there, a partial skeleton, because we could see um, uh, part of a lower jaw and dent, you know, teeth from a lower jaw. We could see in the in the dirt uh, an outline of a broken cranium. Mm-hmm. So we knew we had a skull, and we could see on the surface some of what we call the postcranial skeleton, the mm-hmm. the bones below the. from the neck down. Um, And when you have an associated skeleton, that's really valuable because, okay, with the the face and the teeth and everything, we can figure out what species it is, but the rest of the skeleton tells us a lot about its adaptations and its ecology and behavior and all that. Mm -hmm. So we were super excited. So we organized a three-week expedition. We got emergency funding from National Geographic uh, because we thought we, we can get a skeleton out of there in three weeks. 
at the end of three weeks, we had recovered about 1,500 hominin fossils. Wow. Representing at least 15 individuals. And this is, for, for them, for these cavers, because I know, spoiler alert, it was a rather narrow uh, yeah. space, for, for them to um, have the picture of a hominin species, I mean, n- normally in the... Um, Monello, I'm never going to remember the name of the other one. What's the oh, Malapa? Uh, Malapa. Yeah. Um, it, I, I, usually, a fossil find, you're you're like sifting through antelope and cats and yes, things exactly. like that, right? Exactly. Trying to hoping to find and uh, you know yeah. the the treasure of yeah. For every hominin fossil you find, you found fifty thousand like antelopes and warthog and right, yeah. right, right. So fossils in Rising Star were just a totally different story. Yeah. So um, our excavators got down there and, you know, began recovering fossils and we're finding, okay, we've definitely got at least two hominin individuals, three hominin individuals, and it was nothing but hominins. No warthogs, no baboons, no antelopes, no giraffe, nothing but hominins. And that's like extremely rare. So that tells us it's not a carnivore accumulation because there's no carnivore that just goes out there and preys on one species. They, they like a certain, you know, animals of a certain body size and that occur in certain habitats, but they'll, they'll take whatever. Um, yeah, so that was weird. And when we looked at these things, they're, um, they're definitely, they belong in the genus Homo, but they're very primitive. They look kind of like an early Homo erectus. Just based on the anatomy, it's something that you would say, okay, this is probably close to 2 million years old. Their brains are small, about 550 to 600 cubic centimeters. So that's the size of like a gorilla brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that these individuals in Rising Star were only on the order of about 250 to 320,000 years old, which was a mind blower because that means they probably diverged from other members of our genus fairly early, Mm -hmm. like before Homo erectus, because in some respects they're primitive compared to Homo erectus. And then they didn't change very much Mm. and they just hung around, but we've never picked them up in the fossil record before. Mm. Uh, and why do we have 15 individuals back there in this deep chamber? We, we can tell that the chamber has always been in the dark zone of the cave, that it never had an easy way to get into the chamber. And our best hypothesis is that the bodies were placed in there by other members of, of their species. Hmm. It's where you'd bury someone or something. Yeah, exactly. And and so they're primitive. They have smaller brains. What did you say the size of the brain? 550 to 600 okay. cubic centimeters. So that's... Ours on average, global average, are 1350. Right. So it's about so, half the size of the smart, small brain guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so that's... Uh, that's un, uh, kind of unexpected. I mean, we, we see primates, elephants. We, we, we see lots of different grieving, ritualistic-ish yeah. looking behavior. But Well, again, it's, it's fun to be involved in a debate like this because um, a lot of people in our field sort of have the idea that um, 
burial is a part of symbolic behavior that takes a big brain and takes a cognitively special hominin to do. Uh, whereas people in our field who work with animals, we're like, oh, we can totally see it because they've always seen things that they interpret as grieving behavior, you know, in chimpanzees, in various primates that seem to to reflect a recognition that death is a change in state. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a transition. Oh, yeah. It's just looking yeah. through Instagram. There's an elephant carrying her yeah, exactly. dead calf or a round mother that, yeah. you know, was processing, yeah. you know. Yeah, there was recently a case of a chimpanzee who carried a little dead baby around for like three days yeah. until it started to fall apart. Yeah, really yeah. sad. But, you know, the other thing, too, is um, we, we referred to it at that time we had some evidence that um, these fossils were occurring in two different depositional layers. And so that indicated to us that the behavior had occurred over time. So we referred to it as ritual behavior. We didn't mean ritual in the sense of like, okay, they're putting on robes and lighting Playing candles and dancing and around. Like right. We meant ritual in the sense of repeated behavior. I see. And to me, this can be as simple as like, hey, these are large brain, socially bonded animals. And they know that if a member of their social group, you know, that they're bonded to dies and they leave them on the surface, they're going to see like hyenas picking it apart and vultures feeding <laughs> You're just trying it. to have lunch and, yeah, uh, and right. Mike's over there right, getting exactly. his eyeballs plucked exactly. out by Nobody a wants to see that, right? Yeah. Uh, so they're just Not taking them. Not to mention them. the parasites, of exactly. insects, yeah. So they're just taking them and tucking them away somewhere where nothing can get to them. Hmm. I don't mm. think it requires a whole lot of cognitive, mm -hmm. you know, processing. Don't, don't need it. The dancing came later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Exactly. So, you know, that was like, that was like hitting the lottery a second time. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, people have done it. People have won the actual lottery yeah. two times. <laughs> It, uh, it's a crazy experience. And, yeah. and you did the, the scientific version of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So, so can you give us a sense of like, um, I, I, I don't know how, how, how rare a find like this is. Cause it, there, there must've been, there must've been a period of time in paleontology where the field was young and there's lots of things being classified over time and, and, and like lots of exciting things first discovering the cradle and the fossil remains there were, you know, there must've been like kind of discoveries left and right, but that dried up some time ago, right? Some of, some of that early. Yeah, actually we're, we're kind of, um, finding things faster now. Really? Yeah. Part of it, like there was a mindset, um, the, the early people who worked in the cradle, they were like, oh, if you want to, you want hominin fossils. The cave has got to have certain characteristics and you need to see baboons in the fossil record because the, the carnivores like leopards that go for baboons, a hominin is the same size range and ecologically similar to a baboon. And so mm. a lot of these guys went into caves where we have since found hominin fossils and they didn't like the look of it. They're like, yeah, I don't, we're not seeing any baboons in the, the faunal assemblage. Uh, and they didn't really work the caves. Mm. Um, so, you know, Lee calls hominin fossils the rarest sought after thing on the planet. But the reality is that there were probably a lot more species of humans running around than we've actually found. And so there will be other, I think, incredible discoveries. 
Now, so re- regarding regarding DNA evidence, is, which is incredibly exciting, and you can go and because you can collect it from fossils, right? Yeah, so, um, like, if the conditions under which are, the fossil existed were right. Okay. We've tried with with both Sediba and Naledi to get DNA, and we have not Nothing. been able to. Huh? It, it, it's not, or we're getting more and more advanced with. Um, like I took just like a 101 genetics course at probably close to 15 years ago or something. But but uh, I, I remember you can you can kind of just work out genetic drift and and things, and and you can sort of to to see uh, to estimate the length of time since the last uh, common ancestor yeah. And, yeah. and that sort of thing. So within doing that, are there with you know, AI mulling through all of this new information that we have and everything else are, are there things popping up where it's like, there's, there's some stuff missing in this genetic code here. There should be another species around somewhere in here. And this would maybe be where they would be at. Yeah. So, um, well, folks in Africa didn't interbreed with Neanderthals, right? Because it was only the populations that expanded out of Africa. They were interbreeding with some kind of archaic human in Africa. Maybe it was Homo naledi, or maybe it was something, something else. But um, uh, geneticists looking at the DNA of living Africans have basically identified what they call a ghost lineage, that there is something that contributed to that DNA, which is very ancient. Interesting. And don't ask me how they can actually tell that because it's, it's above my pay grade. I mean, yes. these are some very smart people. <laughs> uh, it's a, it didn't, it actually, some of the basics didn't seem that hard when I took, uh, I, yeah. I, I was, well, actually I was blown away what you could learn in a 101 yeah. course. Yeah. And just to, uh, just to imagine what someone that does this full time yeah. could, could come to learn and understand with training. But um, yeah, that's, I, I, I also, much of our, we're, we're, this is, a lot of this is just the history of, uh, of human horniness to, <laughs> yeah. to just like, we got around a, a, yeah, a we little did. bit, like, yeah, we did. oh, it looks like, oh, we checked the DNA, oh, it looks like we missed another one right. that yep. we were mating with, exactly. keep an eye out for this thing. <laughs> um, exactly. Holy smoke. So, so what was it? What what was what was it like that for I, I mean what was just forget kind of the science aspect what was the experience of the I mean you've described it as as winning the lottery but what happened in terms of well, it, you mentioned what was it National Geographic yeah. that gave some early funding and everything was yeah. there a lot of media excitement early on or? yeah so um, uh, paleoanthropology has historically been a, a very kind of like um, a boys club, you know, good old boy network. And, and like, I'll let you see my fossils as long as you agree with me. You know, if, you know, if, if I disagree with you, you'll never see my fossils and very um, uh, uh, parochial. Is that the right word? Um, territorial. Mm-hmm. And we've worked hard to try to open open that up and really promote open access and a more kind of uh, pro-science approach. And um, 
So initially with the material from Malapa, we did that by basically making it available to uh, our colleagues. Uh, they were welcome if they came through Johannesburg while we were working on it, they were welcome to see it even before we published and making casts of all the material available. There's a lot of great fossils out there where you cannot even get a replica of it because the, the people don't want, they don't want you to know you know, they, they want you to have to take their word for... So, the, wait a second, so that's... So I, I go out, um, like, cave, I've been caving once, loved it, would love to go again. I go in there, I stub my toe on some, like, nose hole or something of some new species and make this new discovery. I own that thing? Well, no. So um, here in North America the um the antiquity laws are actually pretty archaic and if you own the property you own it so that's okay. why like the guy who who dug up sue the t-rex skeleton he owned that and he sold that skeleton most nations are not like that the the fossil is the property of the state uh -huh. but these research teams manipulate the museums. So like in South Africa, we have to have a permit to excavate the fossils. And that permit has to name the repository where the fossils will be curated. And that has to be an official repository that's recognized by the, the nation of South Africa. Um, but what they do is they, they basically work with the curators of the museums where these fossils are, are curated um, and, to prevent anyone from getting access to the fossils without their permission. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Or replicating them and distributing casts. These bone hoarders. Yeah, it's oh, horrible. Oh, man. I'm going to talk mad smack about bone hoarders yeah. in the future. So we have... Um, what, are they, what are they like? Do they have like a personality type about them? <laughs> Insecure, <types>. I guess. <laughs> Insecure. You know, my feeling is they don't want... You know, they want you to have to take their word for what they've said about the fossils. They don't want somebody to go, yeah, no, I don't, I don't agree. That's so anti-science. That's right. Uh, science is everyone trying to disprove you know, one yeah, another. Yeah, and, and if you want to say, hey, you think you're wrong about Sadiba or Naledi, we'll be like, come on down. Yeah. And we'll open up the vault for you. Prove us wrong. Well, might create a new idea. Might yeah. make a new discovery yeah, yeah. from that in, in, uh, inquiry. So, so the difference with the rising star is you went a step further. So, so you'd open it up to colleagues with the uh, with the early site that I promise you I'll never remember. Malapa. <laughs> my my listeners know how bad I am at remembering <laughs> names. I'm surprised I can remember Stephen Churchill. That's like I deserve an award. Um, but. Uh, so that's you're opening all that up to colleagues, and then what's really special about Rising Star was we opened it up to the public, and now because now the internet's come along uh, that much further, yeah. and and the crowdsourcing is becoming more and more of a thing. Because this is what now 2013 or something. Uh, like yeah, 2013. Okay. Um, oh, so I should say uh, for any of your listeners who are interested, there's a great um, BBC program called The Two Million Year Old Boy, which is mm. about our work at Malapa. And then um, because National Geographic funded our expedition at Rising Star, mm. they did a one hour program called the dawn of humanity it's a nova program mm. so um and that's got great footage from inside the cave and and you get a real sense of what our excavators worked 
worked in. But anyway, so National Geographic funded it, and they're like, we want to send some bloggers who are going to live blog it, as well as a photographer who's going to get photos as events uh, happen. And um, so we we did. We live blogged the entire expedition. And our excavators, like sometimes you would find them at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, up at the, we called it the command center where we had the computers and everything, talking to like a third grade uh, class in Oklahoma about what was going on. So people were following the expedition in real time. So as we started to figure out, we had multiple individuals down there. The world knew we had multiple individuals down there. And that was, that was really, really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and uh, can, can we talk a little bit about, um, just to add a little more excitement to the story as well, on top of everything else, actually getting to this site yeah. in the Rising Star was a, a it was a kind of a harrowing yeah. uh, experience. Yeah. And so um, I'll tell you the story about how the chamber where the fossils are was discovered. These two cavers, um, Steve Tucker and Rick Hunter, were caving in Rising Star um, on a Friday night. And they were at the top of um, uh, a feature in a chamber called Dragon's Back, which is a bunch of like boulders which had fallen from the ceiling of this chamber and created this climb that you, you had to climb to get up to the top of the Dragon's Back. And they were up there and there was sort of a narrow fissure and there were some cave formations in the back of the fissure. And Rick was like, Steve, man, you're in the way, you know, get out of my way. And he saw that there was a narrow fissure to, to his right. And he squeezed into it just to get out of the picture. And he realized as he did that, that it, it carried on downwards. So he's like, hey, Rick, this, this fissure goes. So he starts wriggling his way down there. It turns out it's like a 40-foot vertical crack and in places, it gets down to seven inches in diameter. It's so tight, they have to take their helmet off and turn their helmet sideways to fit their head through in places. And he squeezes his way down there to, to finally where his feet are just kind of dangling in the air. And he kicks around, and he finds a foothold, and he lowers himself in, and Rick comes down after. And now they're in the chamber where they see the fossils. Yeah. So this creates like... a practical problem for us because right. how do we get the fossils out right number one you know i'm too big and fat to get down there like so we needed we needed small fairly skinny excavators we needed people who were not claustrophobic we needed people with caving or rock climbing experience we needed people with emergency medical training because we knew if something happened down in there, it would be really hard to get somebody out. It would take a while. Um, you know, we needed people with the, the knowledge, you know, like master's or Ph.D. in geology or paleoanthropology or whatever. Um, so we, we crowdsourced it. There was a paleoanthropology Facebook page, and Lee put an announcement basically saying, hey, we need people with these characteristics and this skill set. Oh, and they need to be ready to like jump on a plane in a couple of weeks and come to South Africa for three weeks. Wow. And we got applications from all over the world and in the end uh, picked the, the um, uh, six most qualified. Uh, turns out they were all female um, and National Geographic dubbed them the underground astronauts. But the conditions they worked in were, were just, it was phenomenal, the, the job that they did.
Yeah. So yeah. you had to just get short, tiny females yeah. that could squeeze through. Okay. I, yeah, it's a very tight cave. It's I've, I've, I've been caving once and I got in some tight spots and I'm a, an adventurer and an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. And I was still like, Oh, oh this, this gets the blood going. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, back in, in the day, I did a lot of caving here in North America uh -huh. and I've been in rising star cave. I haven't been down the chute into the, that chamber, but I've been in other parts of the cave and it is a remarkably tight cave. Mm -hmm. It's like you're fighting it the whole way, just squeezing through and wriggling and turning your body. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's what's life been like since these since winning the lottery twice with these discoveries? Uh, what's been really fun about about the projects is that um, another thing that we sort of sought to do was to get greater engagement from early career stage scientists. So we did that uh, first with Malapa. We brought in a um, a core group of people to work on different parts of the anatomy. Um, and then when we we hit the, the bonanza at Rising Star, you know, we had an order of magnitude more bones to deal with, to analyze and work with. So we brought in 40 early career stage scientists. The problem for me these days is that, you know, we took that core group from Malapa, who had started with us as fairly junior people, but now they've they've been seasoned with high high visibility publications and whatnot. And we moved them over to the um, Rising Star project, but they each became team leaders of a team of more junior scientists working under them. Mm. So we just bumped the hierarchy up a level. Mm -hmm. uh, so now I find myself kind of out of work, <laughs> you know, because they're so competent and the people who yeah. work on their teams are so competent, um, you know, and I still review the papers and, and I still look at the fossils, but, you know, I, I don't work in the field anymore. I'm not the guy finding the fossils. I'm not the guy doing the, the first work on the fossils. You know, I do do some of the descriptive, the detailed mm -hmm. anatomical descriptive work on the fossils, but... Um, now, when I go to South Africa, I'm mostly just in Johannesburg instead of going out in the field. Is, is the field more of a young person's game? Yeah, sort of in yeah, some maybe. Ways? Was it was that was that pretty? Um, was that kind of an adventure for you early? Yeah, on in it was your always career? fun. Yeah. Always fun to work in the field. You and, recommend it if if there's yeah. lis listeners yeah, thinking yeah. about what to do with their lives. Yeah, and and our sites, you know, like Malapa is in a large nature reserve, and so there's a giraffe that likes to come around and check out what we're doing there, and you know, you, you might see any any kind of African and wildlife mm -hmm. uh, while you're out there. So it's really great. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, unless there's anything that uh, you need to put a bow on no, or anything this has like been a lot that, of fun. I, I really enjoyed yeah. having you. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Appreciate oh, uh, last thing, you, you mentioned the two shows that people can check out. And then, um, well, there's also, because I had had John Hawks on before, the Almost Human book is yeah. about this yeah. as well. Yes, exactly. Um, and then if, if people want to, find out um, more about you and and your your research just find uh, Stephen Churchill at Duke yeah yeah we'll go to like the evolutionary the anthropology webpage and I'm on there awesome or yeah. come to the camp out in yeah Raleigh there you go and, uh, Meet me in September person. 9th through 11th and, yeah. and hang out and ask some questions of your own yep. thank you all right thank you Shane and thank you guys for being such wonderful curious people we'll see you with next week <laughs>